Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of Cardiac CT, How We Do It. And I mentioned last time that one of the key things we look at in terms of dose and in terms of acquisition becomes how we gate the studies. And classically, retrospective gating was what was done, which is the continuous acquisition of data with simultaneous recording of the ECG. The good thing about it is you can record data at any time point in the RR interval. You also can do motion studies. Downside is radiation dose. Perspective gating, you have a signal from the RR wave, triggers scanning at a set point in the RR interval, and we only use a portion of the cardiac cycle. And let's discuss this a bit further, but of course, using only a portion, you only have the X-ray tube on full blast for a short period of time, and you can really decrease the dose. So retrospective, continuous acquisition, cine loops can be done, but the dose is higher. Uh, if you look at some of the common knowledge about radiation dose, and let's just step back a little bit, advances in CT technology has resulted in significant increases in cardiac CT applications. It's imperative that the radiologists understand the resulting dose implications to the patient and actively engage in optimal protocol design to achieve adequate image quality with patient dose reduction in mind. And we agree 100%. Now, when Dave Dow wrote this article, 2007, which means he wrote it in 2006, we were doing retrospective for the most part, and you can see the numbers, probably 15 to 18 millisieverts was a reasonable number. And this is where all the grief for cardiac CT came in. Now it's interesting, even at its worst case, it was still a lot better than the, than the uh, nuclear medicine studies, spec thallium stress test with 25 millisieverts. Uh, obviously at that point, perspective gaining was coming along, and you can see the potential for decrease in dose. So when you look at radiation dose today, even with retrospective, we can do it a whole lot better, probably in the 7 to 10 range. Uh, however, prospective just wins out all the time. And as you go to even faster things like the flash, you can get routine doses in the 1 millisievert range. So there are many different things. Now, just to go back and repeat history, the articles by Einstein talking about the potential risks of cardiac CT, saying for a 20-year-old female, it was a lifetime cancer risk of 1 in 143. Again, it's a relative risk because one out of three people die from cancer, but nevertheless, create a lot of stir. Uh, Again, talking about how it's in younger patients, we understand in younger patients the potential for radiation issues is higher. And of course, we'd like to think that we do studies in patients where it's necessary. But there are many ways we can go around it. So things have been done. Lower tube voltage leads to significant reduction in dose. So we're seeing now 100 kV almost routinely being used in thinner patients. And you don't need to be very thin, but not obese patients using 100. And in fact, there are articles written now with 80 kV. And when you look at this article by uh, Flederer, talks about the fact that decrease 39% just by going to 100 kV from, 200, from 120. Just very, very impressive. Um, same article. Radiation dose increase with the square of tube voltage and small changes in tube voltage result in a large change in radiation dose. And if you can go to 80 kV, which has just been introduced on the Siemens flash, dose reduction of 80%. And so very, very impressive. Uh, the Toshiba 320 mean effective dose was in the 5.7 plus or minus 1.1 millisievert range. 
So again, uh, but of course, that's if you use one heartbeat acquisition. If patients had slight arrhythmias and they had to use more than one heartbeat, then doses went to 19 or, uh, or 13 millisieverts. So again, it's better, but you can see some of the issues indeed. Um, this article by McCullough talking about dual energy CT scanners, dual source CT scanners, the importance about lower dose, uh, Summer having an article looking at high pitch acquisitions. So with a uh, flash, you can have a pitch of up to 3.4. Now, a key thing with high pitches, you need heart rate 60 or less. Here it says 65, but probably 60, as Stefan Achenbach mentions, is more likely. But that high pitch can indeed decrease dose very substantially. Okay, very, very impressive numbers. In conclusion, in the current study, it can be proven that the recently introduced high-pitch protocols for cardiac CT only at a fraction of radiation dose can bear with conventional cardiac CT protocols, such as prospective trigger techniques or spiral acquisition with a retrospective. Indeed, very, very impressive. But remember, uh, we talk about dual-source scanning, not doing beta blockers. If you want to get the best radiation profile, you need low heart rates, so you're going to use beta blockers. And here's just a typical protocol, 100 kV, you see scan time, 0.3 seconds. Indeed, very impressive radiation dose, 1.1 millisieverts. Very, very impressive. And putting things side by side on the same scanner, just looking for a second at the radiation dose, high pitch versus perspective, 1 against 4 or 1.1 against between 4.1 and 5.3 potentially. Or when you put it out, high pitch perspective, retrospective, 1.1 versus 4.1 versus 11. So you could see there is substantial advantage to high pitch. There's substantial advantage to perspective. But at this point, high pitch kind of rules out, but rules everything. But reality is, is to do high pitch, low heart rate, regular heart rate. So indeed, it's, it's a great opportunity and something we're going to. Now, another thing that's been shown is ACER, which is this dose reduction by using iterative reconstruction. You scan with lower dose and you improve quality by post-processing. That's something that's, again, becoming very important. A more recent article, which I don't show you here, actually made the point that with the presence of calcification, inner reconstruction can make the images better. But here it's dose reduction because tube current reduction is related to the square of noise reduction. Our 17% noise reduction with 40% ACER with theoretically permitted tube current of 30 to 40% resulting in proportional decrease in effective radiation dose without altering image noise. So again, we're looking at all sorts of combinations, low KV, high pitch, ACER. The thing you really want to think about is what if you put all of them together? How low can you go? It sounds like something with Calypso dancing. Questions come about breast shields. Some sites use breast shields. Um, key thing is place them after the topogram has been done. Key to wrap them in sheets or blankets to avoid skin contact, which increases the noise that is present. Um, some articles like this one have very good results. They talk about a 29% decrease in radiation dose to the female breaths. The SCCT does not recommend them. They said they're not needed. Other dose reduction techniques work well enough. But here's a typical a 3D and sort of an axial view showing it. Here it is in 3D. Key thing is 
Don't let it touch the chest wall. When it does, there's substantial artifact. And you can see a little bit of artifact here, a little bit of noise, but it's kind of anterior and usually would not affect the quality of the cardiac images. And again, here it is against the chest wall. Okay, very good. Now, how do you choose a specific sequence? I said there's fast, spiral, uh, there's um, you know, re uh, retrospective, there's prospective. Well, there's certain things. Heart rate, consistency of heart rate, patient compliance, and physical size. So prospective. Again, the key is a low heart rate. Wonderful dose reduction. Usual focus is around 70 to 80% of the RR interval. Easy to use that for calcium scoring. And here it is. You can see the x-ray tube is only on for select portions of the study, but the coronaries need to be in the right position at that time, and motion needs to be minimized. Initial articles from Jay Earls talks about the advantages of prospective uh, reconstructions, and in his article, they maintain quality by reducing and yet they could reduce dose by 83%. Indeed, impressive, and in that article, the effective dose was 2.8, which is an 83% reduction from what they were doing with retrospective, or 18.4. Indeed, very, very impressive. And again, you can see from their results, there was no compromise in image quality. Article by Stoltzman, step-and-shoot mode, dual-source CT, Automated tube current modulation, mean estimated dose of 2.6 with 120 kV, 1.2 with 100 kV. Indeed, very impressive data. Now, I mentioned before the heart rate and the importance of heart rate in prospective. Uh, you need to get the heart rate to around 60. Places like in Germany, push it under 60. Injection rates, you know, roughly 5 cc's a second, 60 to 80 cc's of uh, Visi work very nicely. The phase for data acquisition typically is 75% of the RR interval, which is mid-diastole. And depending on your experience and how good the patient's heart rate is, you do some panning around 75%. So you don't have the only 75%, and you may spread it out to get more information. Um, in terms of perspective, the limitations are that if you have high heart rates or irregular beats, this technique should not be used. But in the right patient, you get beautiful studies, okay? No magic, no problem. And articles, even back in 08, prospective-gated CTA with dual-source CT can be successfully implemented with consideration of pre-scan heart rate, very heart rate variability, body mass index, and calcium scoring. Same article, by logistic regression, heart rate below uh, 70 beats per minute, uh, calcium scores that are elevated, body mass that's too high, or independent predictors of unsuccessful prospective uh, gated CT. So, again, what the authors here very nicely make the point is high heart rates, you're not going to be successful. Heart rates are very variable, better think retrospective. Calcium scores higher, that's going to be problematic in every sequence. Big patients are problematic in every sequence. Retrospective is a touch better because you have more error room. You could reconstruct multiple phases to look at parts of the vessel. So again, it's something you may need to do. So some dose reduction strategies these days. 80 kV versus 100 versus 120. We spoke about substantial improvement, iterative reconstruction for post-processing, and the whole idea about high-pitch scanning. Now, again, another article, Impress, Labonte. Coronary CT using 80 instead of 100, 
50% dose reduction with no significant difference in interpretability and non-inferior image quality despite lower signal-to-noise and contrast-to-noise ratios. So people now are pushing that 80. This article uh, just came out within the last few weeks. So it's really a push to get the best dose possible. Uh, very, very impressive. Uh, and again, you need to choose the right patient. A patient with a normal BMI is really the ideal patient. Obese patients are not going to be great. The use of 80 kVp tube voltage should be considered in dose reduction strategies for coronary CTA of individuals with a normal BMI. Okay, very simple. Now, I mentioned before about ACER. And again, ACER is changing. New things were published at RSNA or were released at RSNA, several approvals like Siemens had Sierra approved for RSNA. It becomes very important. Interim reconstruction uh, is going to become the next technique in terms of uh, its improvement with image noise and image quality in CT scanning versus the classic fast backplane projection. Because tube current reduction is related to the square of noise reduction, a 17% noise reduction with 40% ACER would theoretically permit a tube current reduction of up to 40%, and so substantially lower dose. Okay, so hopefully I've covered that. There's a lot more in CTs Us. Look at the Pearl section, and we're going to keep focusing on this radiation issue because we want to make sure that issue goes away and everyone's comfortable on how to do things. Okay, what's next? How do you do a coronary CT in terms of interpretation? Well, the answer is you're going to have to look at everything from the axials through the MPRs, through the MIPS, through the VRTs, through the 4D displays, if they're available. Now, some people will go after the axial images alone. But I think at the end of the day, it's the interactivity. So in this case, looking at the patient's right coronary, you have a good look on the axials. But you need to look at roughly 300 axials, looking for plaque, looking for stenosis. From a global perspective, it's easier to appreciate on this grayscale 3D volume rendered. And it's even easier to see here on this color-coded volume rendered image where you really get a good look at the right atrial appendage, the uh, right ventricle, the left side of the heart, and the patient's um, right coronary artery, very nicely shown in a dominant circulation. Now, this is very good for visualization, particularly in patients with anomalies, but it's hard to use VRT at the present time for stenosis. For that, we tend to use curved planar reconstruction, where we do center lines through the vessel, and the center lines allow us to stretch out the vessel and rotate the vessel and analyze the vessel from every which way so that we can make the right diagnosis, in this case, of no stenosis. Or another case, nice color coding, nice coronary arteries. Now you see very nicely the SA nodal branch coming off the right coronary. Even the smallest vessels, in that case one millimeter, are easy to see. So more images showing this very nicely. And again, the combination of techniques is something that we really focus on. I think using all of the information correctly indeed becomes very, very critical. Another example. Good color mapping, color works well in cardiac, nicely shown, see the vessels tracking. You're looking at the patient's right coronary, also looking at the left coronary system, but really nice visualization. You can see here we change the color maps. That can be very important to choose the best color, the best color maps for individual applications. We talk about curved planar. Here is curved planar versus MIP. In terms of calcification, looking at the right coronary artery, 
presence of calcification is seen very nicely on MIP, but in the presence of calcification, MIP tends to have some problems because it's projection technique. You can't tell whether the calcification is occluding the vessel or simply mildly compromising the vessel. You can go through things with numerous planes and perspectives, but often you're going to have to use curved planar reconstruction as well as um, some other techniques for analyzing this better. A curved planar is really the best, but you can do obliques as well. And here's just a nice example of plaque in the mid-LAD that's calcified and for the most part is non-calcified. Very nice example showing you that in the patient's right coronary near its origin. And again, you can see here very nicely the non-calcified plaque. Now, as I mentioned, when you're looking at non-calcified plaque, it's a touch easier to really quantify stenosis. With calcified plaque, you need to be very careful, especially if you're in the MIP world. Because if you look at this case, there's a plaque in the LAD. Okay, very fine. If I ask you stenosis in this view, there's no stenosis, right? It's eccentric plaque. It's not going to bother anybody. But now I'm going to rotate the data set on the MIP. Remember, whatever is brightest shows up. Now, look at the image on your right. It looks like that, uh, that calcification is occluding the le left interior descending coronary artery. It looks not just that it's there, but it's occluding the vessel. Now here it looks, uh, you can see it a little bit easier to see, and there's none of the issues. But it does make the point that you need to be very careful, particularly with MIP, how you look at the data. Uh, Either you're saying no significant stenosis or you're saying vessel occlusion. Now, sometimes the volume renderings help you. Here's the calcification in the prior case, which is clearly seen there and is not bothering anybody. So again, simply watch that patient. Good article by Rabicki a couple years ago who made the point about thick MIPS often looking good but often being inac inaccurate. And there have been several articles that really go into this as well. The SCCT guidelines does address this, um, and they basically make the point that with MIP, you're looking at the entire vessel luminum wall diameter, and then each pixel is represented by the maximum pixel value within a slab volume, and then goes on to say, of course, that it's great, you can see long segments of vessel, particularly when it's normal. However, there is a loss of lesion information within the slab, as MIP does not provide in-depth information or attenuation detail within the slice. Consequently, MIP should not be the sole technique used for interpretation. And we never would use MIP alone, but it is a helpful technique. Uh, again, long visualization, long portions of the vessel can be visualized. MIP also tends to make the images look nicer, it reduces perceived noise. Loss of information about the lesion within the slab is especially true for non-calcified lesions. Unless there's a critical stenosis, it's very hard to see anything. Minimal non-calcified plaque is just difficult to see, as you saw in the last case. Attenuation values are not always accurately displayed um, against the high values that are shown, often not some of the lower values, and that becomes important. Now. In terms of VRT, I'll just mention that in the SCCT guidelines from 2009, and I'm going to go through some of the 2011 guidelines soon, they found the tech to be helpful, the technique rather, to be helpful in complicated cases, particularly congenital heart disease and, and looking at anatomy, but maybe not for coronary arteries. But I think it is valuable. The new guidelines do suggest it when you're looking at anomalies. So here, very nicely showing you the LAD its branching patterns. You can use the different color maps. 
And again, when you're looking at coronary artery anomalies, it becomes very important. So let's do this. Why don't we take a break here and we'll come back in a couple of minutes and let's pick it up at coronary artery anomalies. Now with that, see you soon. <laughs>